Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I am Brian Bolt from Calvin University, and with me is my co-host, Chad Carlson. Chad, uh, what are you up to today? You know, it's a good day. Uh, anytime I get to do a little teaching, a little bit of research, and, and a little bit of thinking and spend some time in meetings, that's, that's a good day. You like the meetings? <laughs> well, I said that last, you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think everybody has meetings in their life, and we all understand what that means. Uh, meetings are kind of the opposite of uh, what we talk about, right? We talk about play and sport and uh, kind of escaping all of that regular life. Uh, that's kind of fun that we get to move to this podcast and do that. Uh, and it's great to be on here. Typically, on Sport Faith Life, we have a guest. And today, we are going to pause and talk a little bit about a special project that both Chad and I have been involved in over the last uh, few years, or, or sorry, few months, and then a larger project related to the last few years, which is the Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. And for those of you that don't know, the Global Congress uh, started back in 2016, uh, originated uh, with a couple gentlemen, uh, Nick Watson, and uh, Nick did, uh, did sort of the early groundwork to get this uh, project up and running and ran the first Congress in York, UK in 2016. And, and there were probably 180 uh, participants at that Congress, uh, almost a dozen keynote uh, speakers and just a, a wonderful gathering of people from all over the world that uh, were interested in questions and answers on sport and Christianity. Chad, what, what was your uh, kind of takeaway from that first Congress uh, back in 2016? I know I'm testing your memory. It was a long time ago. You're right. There's such a, a groundswell of interest in the intersection between sport and Christianity. It was so great to see people from all over the world. Great to see people from different academic disciplines. Great to see people from different sectors of the industry outside of higher education coming together to have these conversations. And so the vision from Nick and Andy really, I think, hit home that we're connecting practitioners and theoreticians and, and people who are coming at this intersection from all different angles to be able to come and have conversation. It, it did not feel like an ordinary academic conference. It was in many ways. I mean, characteristically, I had the skeleton of an academic conference, but it was different in the sense that there were more keynote addresses, more common content driving the conversations. And so it felt like one, one big community. And really, that was one of the strengths of this, that uh, with so many keynotes, everyone got in the same room. And then as we spilled out into the coffee rooms afterward, the conversations would really just explode because everyone had just heard the same speaker. And so that feature was carried over into the second Congress in 2019. Um, and this, you and I, Chad, we had a, a big role in this one. It was hosted by Calvin University and Hope College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the campus of Calvin. And uh, we used a very similar format for this Congress, and uh, it was another success. Tell us a little bit about that one. 
I'm still catching up on sleep from from all that. It was <laughs> it was a lot of work, but it was it was work uh, it was work that was well worth it. That's for sure. You know, we we had such a great turnout for so many different things at the event. You know, the 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 biggest name speaker, obviously being Tim Tebow, drew in a lot of local interests, which was really helpful for Hope College, Calvin University, you know, Grand Rapids, West Michigan overall to come and hear Tim Tebow speak. But that don't, I don't think was the draw for most of the attendees of our event. The draw was in the keynote addresses. The draw was in the breakout sessions and, and the conversation that was more intimate with our group of 250 as opposed to the 4,500 that were in attendance for Tim Tebow. Yeah, and who knew back then? I mean, we thought we caught Tim Tebow at the tail end of his athletic career, but here we go. Tim is back, right? So he is, <laughs> I think, uh, about to to sign a contract as a tight end in the NFL. So we're just going to have to get him in for the next Congress. Apparently, he's he's not at the tail end of his career. Maybe he's just at the front end. Who knows? Uh yeah, I think the uh, the success of that Congress um, also uh, came from just its global nature. People from all over the place uh, coming in uh, and having a conversation. And what we tried to do is continue that global aspect of the Congress. So much so, you know, when uh, Nick and Andy started this, and I'm going to come back to Andy Parker in just a second here, but when Nick and Andy started this, they didn't know where it was going. Um you know, you you put it out there and you see if there's any interest and really it has exploded. Uh, we're going to return to that that um, Congress in, in uh, uh, the United States in just a second. But I, I, I want to project forward a bit here and think about the next Congress. We so far have been running them every three years, 2016, 2019. And really, no congresses, no conferences have been happening, at least in their usual form, in the last year because of the pandemic. But we're projecting 2022. Uh, can you tell everyone the plan for that one? Well, there has been um, a little bit of a change in the in the seasons, of course, for people over the last 15 months. No one's been able to travel at all, like you said, Brian. So we, we caught the 2019 event just before the pandemic. And the next one we're hoping will be uh, well beyond the heels of the pandemic as well. The plan is in August of 2022 to be in Cambridge, UK at the Ridley Hall School. That's a very historic site, be a, a welcome draw just as a location itself. Um, but this is a place where where Andy Parker has, has started some modules on sports ministry related to the seminary that is uh, Ridley Hall. Yeah, and and that Congress, as you said, we are uh, very much in the planning stages and moving forward. It's been announced. Uh, it'll be in that third week of August. Uh, it will be um, probably a, about a day shorter than the previous Congresses um, so that uh, people can travel to this Cambridge area and see a bit more of it. Uh, so you'll have opportunity to maybe get outside into the countryside, uh, see some other sites in the UK and uh, have that opportunity to interact and blend with colleagues that uh, you hadn't seen in a while and hopefully a bunch of new ones from all over the world. That's been the real beauty of some of these events, these congresses, is, is the ability to now get to the point where, where we're generating relationships, where we're generating growth in a way that, that feels like, uh, like a true academic discipline here. That, that's that's also, uh, you know, part of the draw of these events is to be able to be at a, a place that's that's fun to travel to, right? It's a location, it's a destination. So there's some tourism involved, certainly. Cambridge is what, maybe an hour train ride from London. And uh, so very easy to get to and from. 
very easy to see some of the, the history in Cambridge, very easy to spend extra time in London on the front end or the back end. And it seems like this is a really nice time to have this be a, a location for an event. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. We're all looking forward to this opportunity. It's going to feel um, strange, really, to get back into it in this way. And we are we are definitely pushing forward on an in-person conference experience uh, for all the people that can make it. Details on that will, will be coming out soon. I, I want to kick back to our 2019 Congress, which, uh, like you said, you're still tired from. You know, there were, there were more than 100 breakout sessions um, um, among the, the many keynotes. And uh, in that group of breakout sessions were a handful of papers on sport and play. And uh, from that um, Congress, just like from the first Congress, there were a number of books and um, uh, papers and journal manuscripts that came out from the first Congress. It's also true from this one that uh, uh, some books have emerged and there will be a number of different uh, journal articles that, that are coming out of that Congress. One uh, thing that uh, sort of emerged from that Congress was a special issue of a journal called the Christian Scholars Review. How did how did we get to that place, Chad? <laughs> Christian Scholars Review is a journal funded by about 50 American colleges and universities that uh, that have Christian backgrounds, and so it's it's in support of scholarship that takes a look at Christian viewpoints of of many different issues, any number of different issues. So it's an interdisciplinary journal, and and one that is very well known among Christian colleges and universities in the United States. So we we made a proposal to the editor. It said we had this huge event. And there's a number of papers on this topic that's really fundamental to the experience of sport, and that is the phenomenon of play. We want to explore play um, based on the inspiration we got from this small number of papers on play at the Second Global Congress. And play, as you mentioned, is is really much more than the activity of a child. It, it involves the activity of a child, but but often people sort of um, have this quick dismissal of this idea of play. Um, and when we think about it from a Christian uh, perspective, the the opportunity to explore it uh, apart from sport, but also together with sport, has been really a rich and unique area for uh, scholars like you and me and and many others to to really dig in and figure out what is play uh, and how uh, how does it um, affect the human life. One of the things that uh, we did in preparation for this is just go back and look at at the many different scholars that have spent time in play, and it's been um, sort of a, a a rush of activity in in a certain time period, and then sort of an explosion from uh, scholars in from multiple disciplines. Really, it's not owned by kinesiology or sport uh, scholars at all. In fact, play has found its way into education and art and psychology and biology and neuroscience. It's been um, really uh, picked up on by many and. and because of that, that makes this journal, uh, this journal manuscript, much more interesting. Well, it's certainly the right audience here as we take a look at play from many different disciplinary uh, angles. I'm not sure that that even in our special issue that we're doing justice to the robust nature by which scholars have have attacked the study of play. Um, like like you said, there's so many different disciplines that have done it, and a lot of it's come through. At least the most prominent work on play has come through in philosophy, psychology. 
uh, maybe first and foremost. But you know, there, there's been plenty of work done on the science of play. I think if we're going to consider psychology to be sort of a soft science, maybe harder science is having to do with physiology and biology. But when we think about play, it's not just a human phenomenon either. You know, there are all kinds of animals that have done that. And so biologists have done good work on on play. But we sort of take maybe a, a more um, a more humanistic and social sciences-based approach here in this special issue, taking a look at more conceptual uh arguments related to play and play's value, its nature. And and so I think it's really it's really helpful that we're building on some of the work that's been done. There's been so much work done and taking it a little, in a little bit different direction than many other scholars have. Yeah, and I want to um, maybe start picking away at that idea and talk a little bit about those papers. I mean, the goal here is to, to have this conversation just between the two of us about play and what we've learned in the process. So over the past several months, you and I have been reading papers and rereading and sending comments back to authors. And it's just been a fun process to learn from each of the different authors as we've uh, all unpacked it from our own particular perspective. And play play is really hard to define. There's a lot of uh, sort of quick, impulsive definitions. Uh, and there are words that are sort of connected to play like fun or uh, non-compulsory, diversionary, creative, uh, all sorts of different words that people connect to play, even fragile. Uh, and play itself then is is sometimes used synonymously with words like sport or games, but uh, not always the same. And so we're not always referring to the same thing. You and I uh, spent a little bit of time uh, going into a classic work by Bernard Suits, uh, The Story of the Grasshopper. And uh, if you haven't read it, I, I suggest you sit under a tree and, and go to town because uh, and watch for grasshoppers. Uh, because it is really a playful book, but really uh, also a really robust um, philosophical treatise on games and gameplay and its place in human life. And it makes quite, uh, quite a number of really bold claims. Um, how, how did you like uh, walking through Bernard Suit's book? Well, this is uh, it's essential reading for anybody studying the philosophy of sport. Uh, as you said, Brian, Bernard Suits is such an analytic philosopher that he loves things to be neat and clean, at least from a metaphysical standpoint. So games and play are these two separate entities, as he sees them, two separate phenomena in our, in our lives and our experiences, but they overlap quite a bit. There are times when we experience both at the same time. And one of the things he says about play is that maybe at its at most centrally, it is autotelic. That is, the end is in of itself. So the the reward of playing is the experience of of play, whereas you know we do a lot of things for a reward that is exotelic or outside of the particular thing we do. So we show up to work in order to receive a paycheck, uh, those types of things. But with play, the reward is the experience itself, and he says that's indicative of what play is. And he uses that in a sense to um, to help us understand the ways in which our language doesn't always perfectly accommodate certain concepts that we experience. And play is one of those things. So play is a word we use a lot. Brian, you said it, it has different meanings. And so we say we are going to um, you know, play the trombone, play the piano. And he says it's a little bit lazy, really, because what we're doing is we're operating the trombone or the piano or we're participating in sport rather than necessarily having it be an experience of play, even though it often is. And so he wants to really clarify the landscape for us. And he does that with play. He does that with the concept of games. He calls it game play as being that thing that may be as valuable as anything else to us in the human experience. Right. And the way that he 
makes that come across is to really flip uh, Aesop's fable, right? Ultimately, the the grasshopper is scorned for uh, playing away life and then not being prepared for winter, right? And the ants, of course, do all their work to prepare for winter. And, uh, and uh, Suits decides, you know what? The ants had it wrong all along. And the grasshopper spends its time explaining that theory throughout the course of the, this delightful little book. It seems to me that um, that that's really sort of this is a the grasshopper is a book about morality. I mean that that's why he starts it off with Aesop. It gets so much into sort of the minutia. Of, uh, there's a storyline. There's a narrative that goes on. But there's really something that's fundamental about the way we should be living. And and that's the big thing for Suits is that we we have it wrong by prioritizing work and play being only a secondary experience. We have it flipped. In fact, play has to be the primary experience. And we might we might we might lose something in the process, right? We might lose something that we think is important. We might lose something in terms of longevity, safety, security, all those types of things. But he's saying, if we're looking at it from a, an ethical perspective, the best thing that we could do playing and playing games, that's where it's at. The ant, You're right. The ants had it wrong. The grasshopper had it right. You know, and, and one of the other authors to sort of transition to another paper that will be in this manuscript, uh, it's sort of almost took a, a similar tack in, in looking at a cultural phenomenon, which is uh, the kind of activity that happens in a gym, right? The kind of activity that might happen in a, uh, a workout center, places where people go and get exercise. And uh, the gentleman's name is Andrew Bohr, a, a graduate of Hope College. Um, and uh, we're going to allow him to be in the paper anyway. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, we... we uh, we reach out to all kinds, you know, what do we do? <laughs> uh, the title of his article is Playful Seriousness, the Quandary of Exercise in a Technological Age. And, and for those of us that have been in uh, all these different either uh, public or private uh, workout centers, it's, it's really interesting to try to think about what we're actually doing there. It's a, it's a time of obesity and unhealthiness, and, and we hear about it all the time, right? And there needs to be something done to combat cardiovascular disease or to lose weight. Uh, and Andrew Bohr points out that this is often done unplayfully. Uh, in in health clubs, in gyms, and exercise centers, and so on, where we're prioritizing really efficiency and alluring customers customers with this kind of technological change or enhancement. It's um, Borer calls it really materialistic and, and individualistic, and 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 is starting to question really in what ways does the absence of playfulness in these spaces. Uh, how does it make it susceptible to critique? In other words, should we, as as people that sort of engage in in healthy lifestyles or, or promote the idea of a healthy lifestyle, are we really promoting that through this sort of work? You know, we even call it work. We call it working out. And so the big question there is, uh, you know, what is happening in these spaces? And is it ultimately helping us flourish as human beings? Working out isn't a perfect ner- a perfect word for this, right? It's it's kind of a misnomer in some sense, but in another sense, it it gets at the essence of what exercise has become for us, and and so Andrew is is arguing that we're uh, our our exercise is becoming an extension of our work. It's something that we have to do. It's exotelic. We do this to get that. We we show up to the gym in order to get a better body, better figure, bigger muscles, lose weight, all those things that we want from a health perspective and fitness perspective but that it's work. 
And, and when we do that, we lose something about the essence of, of exercise. We lose something in terms of our humanity. It's just an, an extension of work. And really what we should be doing is thinking about the ways in which our exercise is an, an instantiation of, of the giftedness of our bodies, who we are as humans, the fullness of our humanity. And so to, to reduce exercise working out to a, a sort of a work, a, a technologically sound, scientifically sound, materially based experience waters down that exact experience. It's less than what it could be. And Bohr's article really gets us thinking about those uh, practices that we have in our lives and maybe uh, offering some alternatives, some perspectival alternatives, but also maybe just some practices, some things we can do to sort of bring nature back into it, bring uh, more whole body activity back into it, and bring play possibly back into this understanding of health. I wonder, uh, you know, kind of a fun question related to that is, you know, we often do diversionary tactics when we're in a gym like that. We, you know, we put our headphones on and we listen to music, uh, maybe a podcast like Sport Faith Life. Maybe you're listening to that. Um, there are all sorts of different ways that we try to divert our attention. And and so my question for you, Chad, and I wanted to, to know if you anything pops to mind. It, can you think of a time that you had a boring task to do, something that you would consider to be arduous, something that you're like, you know what, I really don't want to do this. It, it might even be monotonous, repetitive. Um, and you turned it into a game. It's one of those things that that humans are capable of. And actually, we can nurture that I, that idea that we can, we can turn some of these arduous tasks into a game-like or a more playful activity. Well, as an instructor of classes, I'm always trying to to keep the classes from being, you know, mundane uh, or boring. Of course, that's that's you know, that's as the worst a, as yeah. professors, we're not we're not entertainers, <laughs> but we should be entertaining in some ways, right? So yeah. I'm always looking for ways in in my class to be able to do things like that. Um, you know, when I was a grad student at Penn State, we had this huge lecture hall, and of course, sometimes that leads to you know, you're just limited in certain ways of things you can do in terms of student interaction when you have a class of 150, 200 students. And so I can remember one day that a couple of us grad students um, and our instructor uh, decided that we were going to see if we could get the president of Penn State to show up wearing the Nittany Lion mascot costume to class. And we sent Ooh. emails and emails and emails. And eventually the office of the president responded and said he would love to do this. Um, you know, here's a date when he can make it. Does that work for you guys? And it was perfect because that was the day right after a test and um, the class period where it's oftentimes very serious because students are thinking about their grade. And, and so we had the president showed up in full Nittany Lion mascot gear and nobody knew who it was. And he started doing a little dance. And, uh, and then we were asking him some questions. And of course the Nittany Lion doesn't talk. Right. Um, but then he ended up taking off his, his helmet and it was, it was the president. And I thought a few students jaws were going to hit the floor, but it just ended up really, uh, bringing some some levity to a pretty serious situation. Wow, great example, uh, and good for him. I mean, as president of a university, to to take those relentless emails as the you know the kind of urgency that uh, he needed to fill the space, and he put that on and and did, even did a little dance in in the mascot outfit. Good for him. Pretty memorable. Yeah. yeah. Well, that goes really to, you know, sort of setting a culture, right? And he, and uh, a president uh, at a university tries to set a culture. Um, we, we try to set culture as, as coaches within our different teams and those sorts of things. And so this idea of culture kind of creeps its way into the, the second paper we wanted to discuss, which is um, 
by a guy named Adi Praturi, whose work actually is in the country of India. And uh, it, he's a Christian. He's doing Christian ministry in India. But um, most of the people that he's working with have very little context for Christianity, uh, very little context really for even this, this idea of uh, a Christian conception of play. And so he's discovered something. He's discovered that uh, in India, there's, there's a, uh, a concept that's very similar to play. And it's called Lila, L-I-L-A. And his paper really explores this connection between our um, sort of Western conception of play and this um, alternative conception of Lila in the Indian culture. And what he does is he starts to talk about what they have in common. But also he, he uh, uses that as a springboard for conversation in the ministry uh, of his daily life. Uh, how, what did you get out of that paper in terms of um, how culture really affects how we understand play? Yeah, this is a paper about, about culture. I'm sorry, about play first and foremost, but really the, the focus is on intercultural dialogue, right? What, what can Christians learn from this Hindu concept of play? And, and what, what, can, um, what can Indians across the country learn about, you know, Western conceptions of play, specifically those that, that Christians have um, have, have harnessed over the last couple of decades. And so I, I, it's really interesting how, how Adi engages these two things. It's really two worlds that he's a part of, right? When, when you think about the, the Christian religion and, how, and his work with planting churches, Christian churches in India, and then also sort of the cultural dominance of, of Hinduism. And so he's, he's very much an expert in this, this cross-cultural conversation. And what he presents is a way in which Christians might benefit from this understanding of Lila in order to enhance their experience of worship and and questions about the divine and how we interact with the divine through worship. You know, and his, his engagement here is very intellectual, very theological. And yet I think of uh, just the connection that can be formed uh, through this uh, action of play, uh, sort of the movement of play, the, the opportunities that I've had to, to visit other countries where uh, sometimes I I would not speak the local language. I've been in the Philippines or in, in Africa, and I played basketball and, and played uh, soccer, uh, football in those different places. Um, and uh, even uh, with almost no opportunity to, to communicate verbally, uh, it's amazing what happens in a playful environment. Um, uh, the the looks on people's faces uh, bring a certain familiarity, no matter what culture you're from. And so while there's differences that that help us uh, understand each other and understand our different cultures, uh, it's really reassuring that uh, there's something central about just the human created in God's image, no matter where you're from, uh, that that playful element is deeply embedded. And it gives us a, that connection point uh, with people from all around the world, which we uh, we really try to promote as well in the Global Congress. Uh, another paper I wanted to mention, and I'm going to need some help with this one, Chad, because um, you know this is a scholar, um, also from Hope College. You know, you get really smart people over there, but a, a scholar um, on Dante, and really um, beyond my you know high school required reading of the Divine Comedy. 
and a little bit in college, um, certainly not an expert on Dante, but what a fascinating approach to playfulness. And, and if you, if you think about, um, just the content of this particular poetry, uh, in there, it's it's about it's about hell, right? It's about sin and hell and purgatory, and uh, you would think playfulness has no place here, and yet Curtis finds a way to uh, really uh, look at play as as a catalyst, uh, as a way f- uh, of moving through these spaces, and and I think that that was kind of a fascinating look at play. What what did you think? Well, that's absolutely right. You know, Curtis Gruner would say the same thing. What could be less playful than a poet who decides to write not just about sin, but about the different levels of hell, <laughs> you know, how, how bad each each different type of sin is. I mean, what could be less playful? And yet in in Dante's po- poetry, you know, Curtis Gruner has found that that playfulness is is such a redemptive feature. And it is so when done in community. That's the big thing here. How does one you know, uh, uh, rise up through through you know purgatory and get to and get to the top of the mountain, and it's in community. It's in it's in conversations with others. It's a, it's about being with others in in love in unconditional love. You know that that's promised us, and and so there's there's really a major twist here on and such irony, right? The, this twist on what's oftentimes seen as this morbid or at least pessimistic set of uh, of of poetry. And Curtis has flipped it on its head and said that there's a lot to learn from what Dante has to say about play, surprisingly. A lot to learn about humanity, um, and, and maybe as importantly, a lot to learn about how we live in community with others. And much like Bernard Suits, uh, even um, Curtis tries to do this in a playful way as he refers to his students in his classroom. So an opportunity then to sort of play with these ideas, to try to think through how Dante is is revealing more about our humanity in this story of hell um, than we might first uh, take at first glance. So a, a final paper that I wanted to, to get your response to was by uh, really a scholar on work, uh, Margaret Didims. And she's done uh, a number of things that uh, start to, I, I don't know, break down barriers between this idea of work and play, right? This um, It's easy for us to categorize. It's easier for us to put things into boxes. And when we think about our ultimate redemptive purpose and then our nature it might be that work and play see themselves coming together in ways that we wouldn't have expected. Uh, she, she might argue that work done well provides an ultimate meaning found within God's redemptive purposes. So doing work well is actually playful. Do you think she has something there? I do. I think we oftentimes think about the world in dualities that are too simple, that aren't actually authentic, the experiences. When we talk about work and play as opposites or reciprocal uh, reciprocally related, what we say is that an experience is either play or work, or it's more play, and as it's more play, it's less workful, and that just that just doesn't seem to be authentic. Like I said, our experiences, and I think Margaret's got her finger on something here. The fact that we we can talk about um, good work done well as play, what it means is uh, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It means that our our experiences at work can be playful, or experiences of play can sometimes um, be work-like and that we get, we receive something exotelically from it, right? We think about professional athletes who, whose work it is to play, 
uh, sports or, or play games. And, and Margaret would argue that this is, uh, this is something we should be striving for, that our work experiences would be playful, whether it's considered to be, you know, play like a professional athlete or not. But if you're in industry, you know, finding a way to think about um, how we do our work as good work that has rich and deep meaning, that's deeply satisfying, that's something that uh, speaks to our hearts, that is uh, needed, and that makes us feel very satisfied. Boy, those are elements that seem to describe some of our, our deep play experiences mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and, and you started to bring us back, right? So we're the Sport Faith Life podcast, and we start thinking about, so when we start going down the road of thinking about Dante and uh, exercise environments and uh, other cultures and, and Hindu concepts of Leela, it, we can bring some of that back to our understanding of sport, uh, our understanding of the culture that's created in sport, some of the activity or practices of sport that... Um, that may maybe have been rooted in play, but maybe have uh, been uh, sort of miscast in some ways. And uh, it's important for us as leaders in sport to be able to go back and see what sort of playful element there is that maybe is being lost or distorted by the way that we're uh, participating in sport. It's something that... Um, we wrestle with all the time, uh, especially at higher levels of sport. You start thinking about um, the exotilic um, way that we uh, think about sport. The, the benefits or the bonuses that come from playing sport well uh, can take over and can be the, become the driver for why we're participating in sport. Is that a bad thing, right? Are we, if we're playing sport for some of these external gains, uh, all the better for us, or are we missing something? Well, I would say yes. I think I think we're missing something at, at the end of the day, but it's more complex than that. You know, we, we've, we've put the cart before the horse a little bit here. And I say that because at, at its essence, um, if sport is not playful, we don't play, you know, sport ceases to exist, right? Um, sport has not come about by human, you know, humans haven't created sports or games uh, out of necessity, except a necessity to allay boredom. But there are other ways of doing that. So if we have a game we've created, a sport we've created that no longer invokes play, people are going to stop playing it. And and philosophers have given all kinds of hypothetical examples. One of them is called sweat bead, right? That you would you would uh, watch to see uh, what it takes to get a person to have a, a bead of sweat running down their forehead. I mean, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a terrible game, right? How boring. And because it would be boring, it's no longer playful, so no one's going to play it anymore. No one's going to participate in it anymore. And that's the basis of our sport experiences, right? From an anthropological perspective, our sports are, are there and are popular because they are at their root playful. That's important for us to keep in mind. And um, unfortunately, although there's some positives from this, but largely unfortunately, you know, so many of these external forces have 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 connected to our sports and have in some ways overtaken sport. We're thinking about the external gains of money or scholarships or championship trophies or sponsorships or, you know, this and that. And some of that has been positive for sport. So we're able to watch much more sport. We're able to play much more sport because of the business interests that have, uh, that have glommed onto the interests of sport. But once we lose the essence of playfulness in sport, we lose the essence of sport being something that we do because the reward is in the doing, because it's so fun to do, we really lose sight of what's important. And uh, unfortunately, that that has taken place far too often. I see that on a day-to-day basis as I coach my kids in their youth sports, mm. that so much of it for parents is about what kids can get out of it, as opposed to 
they are experiencing true joy while playing when we just shut our mouths as adults and let them play, right? So I feel like I come into to some of my son's events. He's in Little League right now. I, I'm more nervous than he is. I ask him on the way to the game, how are you feeling? You excited? Yeah, are you nervous? No, why would I be nervous? <laughs> well, I'm nervous. I'm nervous because yeah. I want him to win because I'm not, I'm not innocent, an innocent kid like him, you know, and I want him to continue to experience that true joy. But why would I bring in a non-playful emotion when he doesn't have that? And I love that he doesn't have that. I love that he can just play. And that's what the essence of sport are. You know, he loves, he loves just just running around with friends. He loves being a part of it. That's that's playful. That's the essence of sport. And when we lose sight of that, we lose out on, like I said, sports essence. There are good things that can come from the external factors, the ex- external forces. But by and large, we cannot squelch out play within our sports. Well, amen to that. And one of the more humbling things for sure for anyone who, who thinks they have a handle on sport is to become a sport parent. Right. (laughs) When we're on the sideline, uh, everything that we thought we knew and everything we thought we had in perspective um, often goes out the window. And we're (laughs) we're stuck with our fixated eyeballs on our own kid, hoping they play well on a given day. And uh, it's just an amazing uh, phenomenon that happens from one person to the next to the next. And I think we have a lot to learn about that and about play. But I think that's exactly right, that um, the origins of these games and activities and sports uh, was uh, had had it as its base this playful element and this idea that we want to get back to it right we want to return to this playful feeling uh, something to remind everyone of and we're hoping that uh, we whet your appetite enough on this uh, new journal article coming or this journal uh, manuscript coming out christian scholars review uh, we expect it'll be out sometime in late summer maybe early fall We're excited about that. And then about a year from then will be the next Global Congress on Christianity and Sport uh, in Cambridge, England. We're excited to uh, announce that to you and just keep reminding you about that. Please come back to Sport Faith Life uh, as kind of the, the advertising hub for the Global Congress so that we can all kind of stay on the same page. And uh, send in your comments. Let us know what you think that we can do to, to try to enhance the experience for everyone. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.